Welcome to the 198th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at Drexel University in Philadelphia. Today, we have a discussion of the law, policy, and ethics of the COVID-19 vaccine in the United States with Dorit Reese and Ross Silverman. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls live every weekday at 5 p.m. Eastern time on YouTube. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can also watch COVID Calls on Facebook Live and on Periscope. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. As of today, January 8th, 2021, there are 1,906,468 deaths from COVID-19 globally, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. There are 21,717,216 cases reported in the United States. And as of today, 367,143 deaths from COVID-19 reported in the United States. We are still up at that almost 4,000 deaths a day rate right now. The way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, four-year-old boy who died of COVID complications had been healthy. This was published January 1st on Syracuse.com by Elizabeth Duran. The line is Utica, New York. Xavier Harris was his usual happy self. The four-year-old couldn't sit still running around the house and teasing his older brothers. He was a flurry of motion, his mom said. But Xavier, who was called Zavi by his family, spiked a fever, said his mom, Chantel Brooks. Like any kid, he'd had fevers before and it wasn't too high, so his mom gave him some Tylenol. The next day, Brooks learned her mom had tested positive for COVID-19. Xavier had spent a night over the weekend at his grandmother's. They had worn masks, but Brooks was still worried. She called his pediatrician, who said not to bring him to urgent care, but to monitor his symptoms. Six days after he got sick, funky, wiry, superactive, 40-pound Xavier was dead. Brooks said doctors told her he died of cardiac arrest as a complication of COVID. I miss my little guy calling my name 57 times a day just to tell me hi, she said. I miss him crawling into bed with me. Now I look and he's not there. I can't sleep. COVID deaths among children are very rare. In New York State, only nine children nine years old or younger have died of COVID, according to the state health department. Now, Xavier, who was in pre-K in Utica, had been very healthy, his mother said. He wasn't a sick child at all. He didn't have any underlying conditions, she said. I'm the one who had cancer and am diabetic. Everyone was afraid I'd get it, which is why we wore our masks all the time and used Instacart. When Xavier didn't get better and his fever rose to 104, Brooks drove him to the St. Luke's Hospital emergency room in Utica. She told them about her mom testing positive for COVID, so they tested Xavier, but he was negative. They did a chest x-ray, she said, and found two white spots on his lungs. 
They put in an IV as he couldn't keep anything down, including liquids, she said. Brooks said she asked if he could have another COVID test. This time, Xavier tested positive. On Christmas, Xavier was still in the hospital, but his fever broke and he started asking for something to drink. He was talking, smiling, and telling the doctors he just wanted to watch his Toy Story 4 movie and go home. Doctors said if he continued to make progress, he'd be released the next day. Brooks called her two other sons, Daryl, 12, and Jeremiah, 10. They said they wanted to wait for their little brother to come home Saturday before opening gifts. All of a sudden, the next day, Xavier began struggling to breathe, Brooks said. Another chest x-ray showed the spots on his lungs had increased. Early the next morning, they rushed him to Upstate University Hospital in Syracuse, she said. In Upstate's emergency room, he was surrounded by doctors and nurses who Brooks said were wonderful to him. Xavier was conscious, talking, and asking for his mom. He didn't seem that sick, she said. He would smile at the doctor, but then he didn't want to be touched by anyone. He told me he wanted to go home. The doctors attending to Xavier let his mom hold his hand. Don't leave me, his mom recalls her son saying. She assured him she wasn't going anywhere until he went with her. Suddenly, Brooke said she heard the machine stop beeping next to his bed. He rushed me out of the room to work on him, but I saw his face and I knew he was gone, she said. I knew it was bad, but I hoped they could do something to get him back. Xavier passed away at 7.20 a.m. the day after Christmas. Brooks said she was told he went into cardiac arrest as a result of COVID. The doctors led her into the room to see her son, and she sat for some time holding his hand and telling him how much she loved him. I love you, and I'm so sorry, Brooks recalled saying to him over and over again. Brooks, a 32-year-old single mom, is left with a giant hole in her heart and a lot of questions. Why her son? Why did this happen? Xavier was a welcome surprise, she said, born after she'd suffered a miscarriage and wasn't sure she could have any more children. I lost my miracle baby, she said. I don't feel normal anymore. I feel like I'm not complete. Reeling from Xavier's death and his funeral, Brooke said she's comforted by the support from her family, friends, colleagues from the Utica City School District where she's a teaching assistant and also from strangers. People have sent cards, brought food and contributed to a fundraiser to pay funeral expenses. More than 150 people watched the funeral on Zoom or walked through the calling hours. A few people at a time, she said, it helps but Brooks said it won't bring her son back. Brooks and her two sons have tested negative for COVID. Her mother's only symptoms were a cold and cough. She's recovered now. Brooks wants people to know getting sick from the coronavirus can happen to you, young or old. No one is safe. No one can be sure they will recover. He followed the guidelines, she said. How can it spread so rapidly? To me, it's just crazy. I don't want anyone else to experience what I've just been through. I want to turn to the conversation for today. Really pleased to bring my guests on and owe them an apology uh, in advance. They were so kind to reschedule. We were planning on coming on Wednesday, but I had a huge technology failure and we've repaired it now. So I want to introduce you to my guests uh, for today. Um, Dorit Rubenstein, Reese, and, and I should stop here. Is it Reese or is that the correct way to? Rice. Thank you. I'm glad I asked. Dorit Rubenstein Rice is a professor of law at the University of California Hastings College of the Law. Increasingly, her research and activities are focused on legal issues related to vaccines. 
including exemption laws and tort liability related to non-vaccination. She's published law review and peer-reviewed articles and many blog posts on legal issues related to vaccines. She received an undergraduate degree in law and political science from the Faculty of Law in the Hebrew University of Jerusalem. She received her PhD from the Jurisprudence and Social Policy Program at the University of California, Berkeley. She's a member of the Parents Advisory Board of Voices for Vaccines and the Vaccine Working Group on Ethics and Policy and Active in Vaccine Advocacy in other ways as well. My second guest is Ross D. Silverman, JD MPH. She is Professor of Health Policy and Management at the Indiana University Richard M. Fairbanks School of Public Health and Professor of Public Health and Law at the Indiana University Robert H. McKinney School of Law in Indianapolis. He's a member of the IU Centers on Health Policy and Bioethics. His recent vaccine and pandemic-related work has appeared in peer-reviewed publications, including the New England Journal of Medicine, BMJ, Journal of the American Medical Association, JAMA Pediatrics, the Hastings Center Report, and the Journal of Law, Medicine, and Ethics. He serves as a member of the COVID-19 Vaccine Allocation Advisory Committee for the Indiana State Health Department, and he's an associate editor for the journal Public Health Reports, the official journal of the U.S. Surgeon General and the United States Public Health Service. Silverman and Dorit Rice, thank you so much for joining me today on COVID Calls. Thank you for having me. Thanks, it's a pleasure. So uh, let me start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and, and what's happening with the pandemic there today. Dorit, can I start with you, please? Sure. I'm calling from California and uh, we're not doing so well. Our cases are high, our hospital capacity is low, uh, people are suffering and dying on the plus, and we're a little slow on the vaccine rollout, but the vaccines are rolling out, so that's uh, a good direction. How's it looking there, Indiana? Sure. Well, um, on the positive side, uh, today the state unveiled its new uh, public-facing vaccine website, which is rshot.in.gov, um, where eligible members of the public can sign up to get access to uh, appointments for vaccines. Um, as of 11.30 this morning, more than 33,000 seniors had already signed up uh, to get the vaccine. So that's a, a really positive uh, in what's otherwise been a fairly grim, can you be fairly grim? I guess, you know, grim uh, um, uh, situation here. There's high community spread of the virus. Many of our hospital ICUs are full. Uh, the state has stopped doing close contact, contact tracing um, because the system is just too overwhelmed. And the, the political struggles in Indiana, what has that been like, Ross? Well, with regard to the politics, um, uh, it's, um, I, I think it's been, again, a mixed bag. Um, with regard to the vaccine response, our governor began uh, his, uh, the state's response very evidence-based, evidence evidence-supported. Um, but I think like a lot of states, uh, there became significant fatigue um, over time, and starting in the fall, uh, you know, or in the summer, we started really scaling back as far as uh, the non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions that 
could be put in place, really trying to rely heavily upon health communication. Um, and we had a, a, a very, we have a very skeptical population. Um, it, you know, if, if there's any correlation between the percentage, uh, you know, of the electorate that went with one side or the other, we, we were one of the fastest states to declare victory for Trump in the country. Yeah. Um, and so there's, you know, there's adherence to recommendations is, you know, lower than would be ideal. Uh, there's not heavy enforcement powers uh, that the, the state, you know, that public health agencies are willing to implement uh, because there would be significant backlash. And so it's been a significant challenge here. I'd like to start out just getting a little bit of, of background for each of you and, and how you find yourselves. Uh, your, your work is always in demand, uh, as evidenced by your, uh, you know, importance in your scholarly communities, but you're, you're both also very much in demand in these last few weeks and now um, in, in terms of people trying to understand what's going on with these vaccines. How did you come to this pathway? of expertise. Dori, do you mind if I start with you on that? Sure. So I'm the relative newcomer. Ross is one of the people that I've learned much from since I entered. I've read uh, some of his work. Uh, I, my initial expertise, my initial dissertation was about agency accountability and telecommunication and electricity. Nothing to do with public health. And my early work was about administration and administrative law. Then I had a child. <laughs> And like, uh, well, I don't know if like anyone else, but as an academic, my way of dealing with parenting was among other things to read a lot. Books and online blogs, including science blog. And I stumbled across an anti-vaccine comment and was surprised. So started reading more about vaccines. And uh, after a student recommended the panic book by Ted Looking, I decided that pro-vaccine parents should speak up more. So my first entry was as a parent on social media. Then I started uh, getting more involved in uh, writing professionally about it slowly, but uh, it, it's still I, I still kind of have a two two headed uh, role in this area. First, uh, I write about vaccines and the law, and I am also active on social media in responding to anti-vaccine claims. And it's sometimes a little strange to balance that advocacy with the academic role. It's, that's so um, much what I heard from Peter Hotez yesterday, too, that he found himself, you know, he's got his science, obviously, but drawn into, into that realm in which he finds himself often not only um, providing information, but as an advocate and, and taking a while to find his comfort zone. He's found it um, mm -hmm. in, that, in that world. Ross, um, what about you? Thank you, Dorit. Can you tell us a little bit about how you come to be interested in these topics? Well, sure. Um, just, you know, generally, as far as public health law and ethics, I mean, it, for me, intellectually, you know, this area, um, it, while I was in law school, I, I got both my law degree and my public health degree at the same time. And so that's always been sort of my interest. And it was really because, you know, it sits at so many different intersections at politics, policy, law, health sciences, community engagement, all kind of come together in public health law and ethics. Um, and because of that, you know, it, it forces you to have to become professionally multilingual, which I really enjoyed. Um, 
and because the fields are practically focused, um, the work keeps me looking for ways to come up with feasible, implementable approaches to really complex problems. Um, and vaccine issues are, are particularly interesting to me. You know, when I started doing this work back in the early 2000s, you know, I thought it was going to be like a nice little niche, you know, not a whole lot of, you know, kind of a, you know, a small pond to kind of learn and master. Um, and, you know, I, I found myself in the middle of discussions just as uh, all of the, what we would call the newest wave of sort of vaccine hesitancy was really starting to crop up. Um, but, you know, I've stayed in, in, in this field, again, because I do believe in the value, uh, uh, the public health and community value of vaccines. Um, but also, you know, intellectually, it raises a lot of really interesting questions about role of government, our responsibilities to the community as individuals, um, vulnerable populations, parenting, trust, all those different kinds of things come together. Uh, in this field. So, you know, that's, that's what kind of kept me coming back. And, and you both are engaged as uh, in the policy process as well, which I find really um, important. Maybe that's not too um, uh, unexpected for people who work in, in the law and policy or administrative law areas. But I imagine right now, both of you um, are deeply engaged in advising policymakers and policymaking staffs. Can you, I, we might touch back on this again, but it's it's of particular interest to a lot of COVID calls listeners, how it is that academics can begin to move their work into the policy space. There's nothing, usually nothing linear about it. It's very event driven. You kind of have to have your talking points ready, which a lot of academics struggle myself often to do. Could you say, to say a little bit about that, Ross, let me stick with you on, on this, just finding your way into that policy sphere. Sure. Um, well, I'm, I, I've I, I actually kind of came from politics first before oh. before academia, and so for me, I've always sort of seen it as you know, it's almost like you know, for academics, for me, you know, it's also the kind of the same as as getting involved in service. Um, I've always seen it as a integral component of what I do. That said, uh, you know, you know as well as anybody, the, you know, academia is not particularly the most friendly place for, you know, this is what we would, you know, uh, you know, called community engaged work or, or, or public service. Um, and so uh, for me, um, you know, I came to, for example, here to, uh, to Indiana University uh, because it was in the state capital. Um, I wanted to get engaged uh, in you know, with policymakers, helping them to, to address public health issues in the state that has really you know, challenging health issues um, in an evidence-based way. And so um, in addition to that, I've also gotten involved on my campus with uh, working so that the tenure and promotion processes at our schools can better uh, acknowledge and reward these kinds of contributions as critical contributions of being in academia. And so um, so I've kind of gotten, you know, I, I, I try to stay involved, A, because I feel like, 
you know, you know, it, otherwise it'd be like a tree falling in a forest with nobody around. Right. So you want to see this stuff implemented and, and be, you know, um, yeah, I, you got to rise the call when, especially, you know, when your area of expertise is central to the national discourse. And Dorit, I mean, to you, I see that just from your name and so many articles published in these last few weeks, you're answering calls from journalists and then also, as you know, Ross is describing, trying to find uptake for your work in the policy process. That's something that came natural to you as well? No, I'm, uh, I went into academia in part because I like the, the academic yeah. <laughs> nature yeah, yeah. of uh, work. I hear you. But one of the things that happened early is because I was on social media, one of the things I took on pretty early is translating law to the immunization community. Hmm. Uh, the policy involvement came mostly from 2015 when California uh, enacted SB 277. Um, that were the line between uh, academia, social media, and policy blurred dramatically because it was a big battle, and um, I was kind of the person, the local person that was working on uh, the law. Sorry, just a slight bit of lag there. Um, well, let's let's jump into this year. We have so many different aspects of this to to touch on. Um, let me just start first and sort of lay the groundwork a little bit. Um, Operation Warp Speed and the drive for the vaccine. Uh, many of I'll speak for myself. Um, the vaccine and the issues around vaccination were not on my mind in February and March. Um, it's not something I have really have spent much time studying. My work's much more focused usually on disaster response and sense-making and various other aspects um, of how people, you know, try to get government to do what we think it can do in disaster. I'm assuming both of you were already thinking about vaccine probably when you first heard about COVID-19, but I'd like to hear a little bit about your year in this regard, what you thought about um, the administration's push for the vaccine. Were you surprised at all by any of the uh, by the success. Um, let, let me just get your take on that. Dorit, let me start with you and then bring it to you, Ross. Sure. So um, I was certainly thinking about vaccines from the start because it was clear to me at least that our best bet out is if we can get to a vaccine. There were a number of things that came up almost immediately. One is, can we actually get to a vaccine in a reasonable time? Uh, at the beginning, it was completely unclear that we could have a vaccine as quickly as we did. And part of it is, and I think it was a surprise to the experts as well, is uh, if you think, if you look back, I think as late as July or August, the expectation was that the first vaccine would not be more than 70% effective. The data surprised us at how strong it was for the vaccines. So one thing, a question that came up early is, what can we do to hasten the process? What shouldn't we do? The other thing that came up from the beginning was uh, the anti-vaccine movement started mobilizing as early as January to um, fight against COVID-19 vaccines. 
uh, and promote misinformation related to that. The first claim, I think, was that flu vaccines increase the risk of COVID. That, again, goes back to January last year. Uh, so gearing to respond to anti-vaccine misinformation was there from the start. And the last thing was, it was clear to me that when the vaccine comes up, mandates are going to come up. So it, although it was premature in January, it was worth starting to think. Because remember how big a shock COVID-19 was to business. Uh, many of them collapsed, many of them faced existential stress. It was clear to me that there would be a strong temptation to, to uh, try and fight off future closures, not necessarily future disease, future closures by reaching for mandates. Ross? Yeah, no, I, I think er, the early portion of the, uh, of, of the outbreak of the pandemic, it was a little bit less uh, of a front burner issue but you know, as uh, you know, as Dorit, you know, uh, and I were both very involved last year or uh, two years ago in 2019. Now it's two years ago, um, because the, uh, you'll recall there were all sorts of uh, measles outbreaks all over the country, and there were already a tremendous number of very difficult issues that were coming up with vaccine resistance there. And so kind of the pump was already primed for there to be discussions around vaccines and discussions around public health's role in protecting against infectious diseases. And so, you know, so we kind of came into 2020 with those uh, issues just having been resolved over the, over the previous couple of months. Um, but then as, as the vaccines started to become developed um, later in the um, I, you know later in the process I think what we're starting to see or what we started to see you know starting in the fall was nationally especially the the administration but then I think a lot of states really started to bank on the arrival of the vaccine as the primary way to respond to the outbreak mm -hmm. um, like they were essentially putting, all the eggs into that basket that that was going to be what brought things back to normal and they really started to become more hesitant to take any kind of actions to try to contain uh mm -hmm. the outbreak and so so in that way it really kind of became much more of a forefront issue that that, that is really an interesting turning point and i i guess we'll have to go back and actually try to sketch out in the calendar and it's probably different state by state when the the rhetoric of state level leadership started to shift over and maybe it also happened in the private sector as well away from masks uh lockdown other types of containment and then the focus on the sort of technological fix of the of the vaccine can you say a little bit more about that ross because that turning point is probably as we look back a little bit later going to have been a really crucial one yeah, well, I, and I think, you know, in addition to moving away from masks and things along those lines, I mean, it really, uh, you, you saw that politicians on the national level as well as at the state level didn't want to make the hard choices about, you know, everything from, you know, business restrictions and masks to funding for, uh, you know, things that could help people successfully protect themselves. You know, uh, additional stimulus funding, unemployment protections, eviction protections, all of those things, I think people sort of, 
we're, we're hoping would kind of magically disappear as the vaccine would arrive, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, while it may not be, you may not be able to say it's causative, uh, I, I do think that people thought we could weather it until the vaccine got here and it would get here really quickly. But, you know, just to stay with that, um, that either means that people underestimated the amount of hesitancy that would be out there in the population around a vaccine, or, or they just weren't aware of it. They didn't know the history. I mean, the way you're describing it, it was sort of shift our focus away to this, this magic bullet, you know, the vaccine will come. But aren't these state level officials aware that there's not a 100% uptake of vaccine? Let me, I know it's a big question, but I want to start with it in that way. Dorit, let me ask you that first. I mean, is there is that well, just we the lack yeah. of knowledge out there among policymakers? They just thought everybody was going to go line up at the clinic and get their vaccine? We don't need the 100% uptake. We need about probably about 70%. But, but yeah. even with that, you're right that we had some indication that uh, we're going to ha potentially have an uptake problem. Uh, at least in part, I think the people who said the poll, the early polls about hesitancy are probably underestimating uptake because as people see the vaccine, they they may be more likely to uh, take it on. We're right. But uh, you're right that state officials should have been aware that uh, this is not a magic bullet. But we've seen a lot of magical thinking about the pandemic going away from the beginning across many states. Uh, this isn't the first magic solution that states have reached out for. Uh, I think states really believed in March that they can close down for three weeks and things would be solved. Uh, so it's not, the, it's not the first time we tried to wish the pandemic away rather than actually taking on the hard work of fighting it. Dorit is very quotable, uh, Ross. Let me, you know, this idea of, uh, and that's uh, also Joan Didion had that wonderful book, The Year of Magical Thinking. And I can't help but think that this has this year has fit within that in the way that policymakers have thought about their role in intervention. We ha I have to ask about Donald Trump. I, I try to keep him as a bit player in a lot of these discussions because I don't want to give him too much credit or blame for the year. But Ross, um, Operation Warp Speed and the idea that he would save his presidency with a vaccine arriving in the first week of November. I mean, your thoughts? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I do think the I, I do think the national while certainly not the uh, perspective of the scientists working in the federal government concerning the pandemic response. I do think for many of the politicians, we saw, especially after Atlas came in to become in charge of the national response efforts, that it, it became about, you know, waiting for the vaccine to come in and, and provide the, the, you know, the solution to the problems. Uh, of the of the epidemic, um, you know the Operation Warp Speed. On the one hand, again, it's been a it it helped us really move and and make available vaccines faster than we've ever had them before. 
Um, and we have million, you know, there are now 5 million vaccines out for distribution in the first week of January. Right. Um, that, you know, credit where credit's due as far as that's concerned. Um, the push to have everything, and I, and I have to give, uh, you know, again, kudos to the Food and Drug Administration, who was under incredible pressure to try to hurry the timeline and make, you know, make it the October surprise. Right. Um, and, um, and they didn't, you know, they, they let the evidence come in and they, they evaluated it um, in a way that demonstrated that they were going to follow the, the science. I mean, again, we were fortunate, as Dorit mentioned, that th the first two vaccines cleared the bar so easily as far as effectiveness was concerned. But you can't help but think the push to try to get these things approved and to maybe cut corners sure. so that it would be out on the market um has to have contributed to some degree to, to some of the hesitancy i would add one thing to what you're saying and i think i completely agree with everything ross said the one thing i would add is that the administration had another role a less positive role in allowing the vaccines to come forward which is the fact that the administration uh, i hope i'm not overstating it but the fact that the administration's response to the pandemic allowed it to rage uh, to the degree it did uh, contributed to the data in the sense that we had good eff effectiveness data in part because there were uh, so many cases and there was such large community spread mm -hmm. uh, so that also helped the vaccine come forward uh, quicker yeah. part of this just and staying with this sort of um, the problems of how politicians or the public may understand the vaccine system in the united states have to do also with the um relationship and, and this is disaster policy generally in america public health policy we've got federal responsibility state and local responsibility um and uh, talk to us a little bit about some of the ways that maybe has worked but then also some of the problems in the national vaccine strategy and the way you've seen it play out dorit what, do you want to take a first pass on it's really hard to explain it's got a lot of different pieces to it obviously but the part of it I find fascinating, and I find this similar to what FEMA struggles with, is that everybody, when a disaster gets bad enough, everybody looks to Washington, as they should, to deal with things like logistics, which are incredibly hard mm -hmm. to manage, without realizing that the point of delivery is still going to be your local CVS or high school and the local county or your local mayor or governor is going to have a lot of the responsibility there. Seems like vaccine is in a similar kind of bind. Yeah, so there's uh, several layers here, as you've pointed out, and I'll cover a few, but uh, there's definitely a lot more than what I'm going to talk about. Uh, first of all, uh, the vaccine development is federal and the vaccine licensing and recommendations are both federal. The, the states had their role uh, pretty early on in terms of developing distribution plans. They've been working on distribution plans for several months. I think the deadline was August to submit a distribution plan. I may be confusing. There was one deadline in August and one deadline in October. Uh, but the, uh, the approval, the recommendations are all federally centered. And they're federally centered using uh, expert committees. One of the, the roles that uh, the federal government has in relation to the states, among other things, is 
providing additional funding for some of this. Mm -hmm. All states and several large cities get federal grants to support the immunization framework. Uh, and one of the things that we arguably didn't do as well as we could have is provide them with the money they need to set this up better mm -hmm. beforehand. In the latest coronavirus package, uh, the co Congress allocated almost $9 billion to distribution. And that's about what they needed, but it would have been nice to have that in October. Right. Mm -hmm. Or earlier. Uh, so one thing is, uh, as you correctly said, the states have to do the work. The states have been doing some of the work, but for lack of funding, there's a limit to what they could do. The other part is um, states have to do this work on the background of a, their own political and administrative infrastructure, their own political culture, and that varies dramatically. So a state that has a large rural population is going to face a very different set of uh, challenges than a state where the population is more mostly urban and the problem might be more hesitancy or more some, or more uh, prioritizing. Uh, so each state has to uh, think through the challenges. Uh, the other part that may come up to the state is states are in different places in terms of their initial coronavirus response and that includes setting up the public health infrastructure and um, the willingness or the goodwill that still exists in the population in terms of uh, coronavirus responses. That's far from comprehensive, but we can start with that. Ross, do you want to add anything to that? I'm really impressed also with the way that Dorit is describing simultaneously logistical challenges, but also what mm -hmm. often amount to cultural challenges and science communication challenges and somehow Allowing, allowing the freedom, let's put it that way, for states to choose their own path. Um, it doesn't seem much like freedom for a lot of people in states where the job has been done badly. Mm. No, I think, I think, you know, there is, there's a lot of challenges associated with it. One was, you know, the, uh, normally the CDC would play a central role in, in messaging and not mm -hmm. just, I mean, maybe not, ex you know, putting out, you know, the same flyer in every community, but it would be a, a really central resource as far as best practices and getting, you know, the evidence of what's working and what isn't working around, to, you know, all around the country and shared uh, much more quickly. Um, and I do think, though, that, you know, Dorit's point uh, about the federal uh, backbone of of funding is is critical. I mean, to you know, to paraphrase the old uh, Rumsfeld quote. I mean, we you know we went you know we're we're responding here with the public health systems we have, not the public health systems we wish we had. Right. Uh, and so, in this circumstance, we have you know states that have massively uh dramatically underfunded their public health systems uh for decades um and the public health uh workforce has been on a dramatic decline for the past 15 years mm. um and so as these processes are trying to get ramped up and responding first you know that they've been redlining uh for for the last 10 months now and now we have the the biggest you know, logistics mobilization in the history of america uh going on um 
where you know while all these states are are not only running in deficit but uh, are looking at next year's budgets and the or 2021 budgets and beyond as being severely compromised so that federal contribution becomes that much more critical for this to be successful going forward was the national Sorry, go ahead, Dory. Go ahead, please. I want to add, and uh, Ross, correct me if I get this wrong. Most states have uh, are, are not able to uh, spend at the deficit, correct. so they really right. have a hard cut. They they can't if they don't have federal support, the money isn't there. And so we're now, you know, this is, and it usually when you have, as you know, I, I don't have to tell the disaster expert about disasters, but we don't usually have 50 state concurrent disasters. No, so usually you can rely upon the resources that may be available in your neighboring states in order to help out with some issues. And we can't do that now either. But this is what I wanted to ask you about the vaccine plan, because in a lot of disaster planning, exactly as you said, you'd have to go back to the Cold War to find any real significant planning where you imagined a disaster response, continuity of government, whatever it might have been, in all 50 states and territories simultaneously. Um, but it strikes me that a national vaccine plan should have taken that into account in addition to the, the corresponding economic difficulty that would come alongside, to Dorit's point about localities and you know cities going broke, states going broke in the midst of all of this. That's not the encompassed in the plan? <laughs> we okay. haven't been great at planning. <laughs> Uh, throughout this pandemic and yeah. it's not as if we didn't know that we'll have a pandemic at some point. Uh, the United States response has been, I think, I think it's fair to say that it's been subpar. Uh, and one of the, I, I honestly think that one of the other mistakes we did besides not granting enough funding uh, up front is placing the responsibility with the Department of Defense, which may be great at organizing, but is less familiar with vaccines and not necessarily in pub with public health. We have, every year we have a large drive for influenza vaccines. Every year it's run by the CDC. We could have built on that expertise rather than starting fresh. And, and I do think we are a little bit caught flat-footed right now by the fact that it was the Pfizer vaccine that came out first. Mm. Um, I mean, those yeah. have, there's such unique uh, supply chain and storage related issues this is the with cold that vaccine, problem. the cold the cold chain okay. problem. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, in yeah. fact, if you look at the way that the laws are structured for our national children's vaccine programs, um, their policies say that the refrigerators uh, can't be as cold as what's necessary to store the Pfizer vaccine. So we have all the refrigerators we would need if it was stored the way other types of vaccines are, uh, uh, you know, um, are stored. But, you know, so we do have that quirk uh, as part of our response uh, here as well. I, I want to... Um... So we still have a lot of topics on the on the table. Ross, are you going to be able to stay a little bit after the hour, or do you have to teach or do something else right on the hour? I just want to uh, be sensitive to your time. No, I'm I'm okay for uh, for a little bit longer as well. All right, let's let's keep going. I want to I want to talk about um, mandates. 
there's a lot to be said about this. First thing I want to point to the uh, an article that your um, co-author on Ross in the New England Journal of Medicine from October, and is a fascinating article to read because at that time the vaccine had still not arrived, and the un, the what we didn't know in October so much uh, we didn't know is kind of captured in the piece. But you lay out in the piece with your co-authors um, some advice, what you call six triggers for a state mandate. So this question of whether or not and under what conditions states should mandate vaccinate. Can you, uh, it's too big to ask you to say everything that's in the piece, but talk to us a little bit about some of the um, first level things we got to be thinking about what states can mandate and what they can't mandate in terms of vaccines, vaccination. Sure. Well, and, and I'm going to, I want to take your question and pivot it just a little bit because, uh, you know, when I talk about ethics as well as law, you know, the, uh, uh, the law says, can you, uh, the ethics questions say, should you? Mm -hmm. And I would first want to say at this point, and even I would say for the first, you know, next months, if not years, I don't think really mandates should be uh, a primary means through which we move to try to get the population vaccinated. Um, it's, uh, it's a very blunt instrument for uh, where I think what we should be doing is minimizing people's barriers to getting the vaccine. Um, and so in, in some ways, while, while the framing of our piece is about mandates, I think it, it, was, it was more about how to best prepare your population to have a trusted process for getting them access to the vaccine. And so if you if if you have done all the things that are trigger like our triggers are almost like you know defenses in this thing you know if you avoid these problems you will never have to do a mandate um and so that's kind of the way that we approached um you know we you know if you can contain the outbreak in your in your area there you certainly don't need to have a uh, a mandate. Um, you want to make sure there's an adequate supply for the population so that you can meet demand and you can meet people where they are and you communicate with them and you engage those populations. So it's not just a one-way directive. It's, it's actually uh, helping people uh, to gain access and to understand why this would be beneficial. Um, and so from all of those perspectives, you know, we tried to create a system that meets all the kind of ethical standards that you would want of transparency in, you know, community engagement, uh, equity, maximizing access to the service so that it's as easy as possible for people to say yes to without having to turn to either states or employers uh, having to require the vaccines. Mm. Uh, the other piece that I would just say that we didn't include in there, and I kind of wish we did, um, well, two things. One was the discussion can't involve children. You know, most vaccine mandate discussions uh, center around school-based uh, mandates. Um, we don't have the data and the evidence yet about safety and efficacy in children. Um, and so therefore, that's one reason I don't think mandates should be put in place. And the second is 
we still don't have data, great data on how well this prevents transmission. Mm -hmm. And I think that uh, without that information, it's much more about protecting yourself from getting really sick versus stopping the spread of the uh, the infection from person to person. Dorit, if, if states go slow or don't go at all into the space of mandate, what about other kinds of institutions, private sector institutions, nonprofits, universities, employers? Um, I'm assuming it's a state by state legal tangle, but maybe there are federal guidelines. T tell, tell us about it. I, I think this is an area where there are actually commonalities across states, although there is there is certainly a role for state law. For example, a, a state can legislate to is require employers, certain employers to have mandates or to prohibit it. There are bills in about a dozen states right now that uh, are geared at uh, preventing employers from requiring COVID-19 vaccine mandates. Uh, and there's a bill in New York that allows the states to mandate it. Uh, that doesn't mean any of this will pass. Bill is a, a long way from law, but uh, state le uh, legislation matters. But a lot of the framework is not state, it's, it's general fed, federal. Um, and that goes back to Ross' point that there's a big difference between can and should here. Hmm. The can question is, the answer to the can question is that almost certainly most employers can require a vaccine from their workforce with some limits. But it's not clear all should. And here I might take issue with Ross' point by saying that I actually see some employers where it might be the ethical thing to do to require mandates. And I'm thinking, for example, correction officers or at least some long-term care facilities. Uh, I'm concerned about institutions that have what's basically a captive audience where you have staff that refuses to vaccinate and continues to interact with the community and with the captive audience, some of which is at high risk, and expose them. So for me, the mandate question is really a, going to be a specific case-by-case case, question in terms of the should. But for employers, at least, the can is a pretty yes with caveats, pretty clear yes with caveats. What have been, can you characterize for us the, um, the basis of successful exemptions from mandates? So supposing mandates do go into place, Dorit, let me ask you this first, and then Ross, I'll bring it to you. Mm -hmm. I know, Dorit, you've written about this. So uh, what are some of the basis of, I know you both have, what are the basis of these exemptions? Uh, so probably the most justified, the most natural exemption is exempting people with medical conditions that makes vaccination highly dangerous uh -huh. uh, compared to others. So if there's a contraindication, people shouldn't get the vaccine. They should be able to rely on those around them being vaccinated. Right. And therefore, medical exemptions are uh, very justified. So allergies, for example. there might be a question of enforcement. Hmm? Allergies, for, uh, some sort of allergy, for example. In this case, uh, so these vaccines are very new and we don't have a lot of good sense of what the contraindication will be, but there's already a question about people who had allergic reaction to other vaccines, for example. Mm -hmm. uh, we know that these vaccines have a higher rate of allergic reaction than routine vaccines, still a low rate, but a higher rate than routine vaccines. Uh, so there's a question, should we exempt people who had previous allergies to other things? Um, so yes, medical exemptions are the most natural. Religious exemptions are trickier. Um, 
I mean, I have a very strong view on this, and my view is if you're going to exempt people uh, for non-medical reason, it's better to give them a personal choice exemption than a religious exemption, because framing it in terms of religion might basically push people to lie uh, if the reasons aren't really religious. If you want to let people get out of the vaccine for reasons other than medical, don't limit it to religion. Don't force people whose reasons are non-religion religious to lie. However, our jurisprudence doesn't treat it that way. Our jurisprudence does treat religious differently. And although currently a religious exemption is not required, our Supreme Court has recently indicated that it may give stronger protection to religious freedom, which may mean that at some point a religious exemption will be required. Is there a um, I'm thinking about this in, in the context of this week that we've lived and this year that we've lived. What kind of space is there for ideological exemption that is not based in religion, Ross? Well, that's, that's uh, you know, as, as Dorit uh, has, has discussed, um, the line between what is your philosophy and what is your religion is, right. is very blurry. Right. Um, and it's difficult uh, if... If you, I mean, the Supreme Court has said in the past, if you have a very strongly held belief that is non, you know, that's not connected to some, you know, kind of traditionally or very widely practiced religion, but you you treat it that way, then, you know, it's like a conscientious objection. You, um, the law says you have to treat that, uh, we we can't get into the ins and outs of you know if you believe the you know the the flying spaghetti monster told you you shouldn't take vaccines and that's your religious belief or that's your philosophical belief I can't really question that mm -hmm. I just have to see whether you adhere to that belief consistently and that's a tough place to put employers you know to be trying to do some sort of a you know a truth telling test. Uh, that be, all that being said, the you know the law also does say in certain circumstances, for example, if having people who are uh, refusing in places where they may make other people vulnerable, um, then you can uh, you can prevent those people from being in those situations. And so, you know, if we find that the health, you know, that this does offer some protections against transmission um, or some of the later vaccines are shown to to do this um, you could say we can't have you in you know healthcare you know in healthcare settings that are facing vulnerable populations if you're going to be exempted um, we might have to find another type of job for you um another position within the institution or in certain circumstances people who have been fired in the past for uh for not uh getting vaccines
I want to remind everybody that you're listening to COVID calls. I got so engrossed in the conversation, I forgot to remind people listening to COVID calls and we're uh, talking about vaccines and law and, and ethics today with Dorit Rice and Ross Silverman. I want to ask a question now about kind of the inverse of what we were just talking about, which would be the withholding of vaccine. And I want to bring up a case that people have been talking about this week, the governor of Nebraska, Pete Ricketts, and Nebraska has been in the news a lot this year because of the outbreaks in the meatpacking industry. And he said, um, you're supposed to be a legal resident of the country to be able to be working in those plants. He's talking about meatpacking plants in his state. So I do not expect that illegal immigrants will be part of the vaccine with that program. Um, can he do that? Um, I'll, I'll probably answer, should he? before okay. i could say can he um it's it's a, uh, a it's a from a science perspective it makes no sense um you know just like vex just i mean in some way like a, a lot of times i've been talking to my kids about like the covid virus and its spread and things like that kind of like the honey badger you know the old thing about the honey badger don't care you know, honey badger don't care what your legal status is. <laughs> honey badger don't care whether there's a border in place. Yeah. Um, honey badger don't care what you call it. Um, it's just going to go and do what honey badger is going to do. And so, you know, keeping this population, you know, where I think it was one out of seven uh, employees that are in the uh, processing system in Nebraska uh you know maybe you know may not be of legal status that's still a huge share of your uh of your workforce um and you're not going to be able to contain uh the outbreak within a critical component of your social infrastructure um it's it's a really you know it's it's a highly politicized and very public health foolish uh approach that's the should. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate the invocation of the honey badger who I had forgotten about. And now I'm very pleased to have the honey badger back in my mind. But Dorit, what about the can? Can the governor get away with this? Can other governors? Because I think the politics, many things that we thought would not come up in this pandemic. Well, I'll speak for myself. Many things that I wouldn't have imagined have come out and seeing this as an electoral strategy um, to take an industry that's been hard hit and then sort of go deeper and say, not only have people suffered, but I want to make the suffering worse, does raise to me just a real question, can he actually legally do that? As far as, to my knowledge, the answer is um, yes, but. So here's the thing. In theory, alienage is a protected category in terms of eco protection it's that means it's subject to strict scrutiny however mm. we know that legal status is the basis for a lot of state services and state privilege uh, and we know that those lines are drawn and there's a, a good legal basis to saying yes he can it really is again the political temptation to uh, do this is understandable, but as Ross pointed out, it's a deep mistake if, in terms, even if you don't care about these people, let's assume you're heartless, you're okay with them dying from COVID. 
which I hope most people aren't, but let's assume that's where you are. Uh, you're still putting at risk people that you might care more about, which are your state uh, voters and taxpayers, because if you don't vaccinate these people, right. the virus, uh, again, we don't know the effect of vaccines on transmission, but I think both Ross and I are operating, correct me if I'm misrepresenting your view, Ross, on an assumption that there's probably going to be at least some effect on transmission from the vaccines, which means that not vaccinating people means they're not just themselves potentially going to get sick, but they're going to be reservoirs for transmission to others. They're going to get others sick. Okay. Uh, not stopping the disease in your state is a mistake. And and just along those lines, I mean, you know, I, I didn't give the caveat up front. You know, again, the perspectives that I'm bringing are my perspectives. They're not the ones, you know, I serve on advisory committees, but I don't speak on behalf of the state or anything along those lines. Um, our state health director has uh, has came out yesterday or Wednesday and said explicitly that they're not making any kind of distinctions. They're not going to mm -hmm. try and do things like that. So, you know, I you know want to give credit where credit is due. That's you know again recognizing this as a humanitarian issue um, and a you know and a community health issue, not as a political issue, is really the best way to approach this. It's no, Sorry. please go ahead. And the other place where this is going to come up, besides immigrants, is uh, prisoners. Right. With Governor Polis already saying that he's uh, inclined not to prioritize prisoners, and that too is a, a deep mistake. And there might actually be legal recourse under the Eighth Amendment, cruel and unusual punishment. But there's also it's also a deep mistake because prisons are populated with people that go in and out of the community, and outbreaks are not going to stay there. <laughs> vaccinate everyone you can because that's the best way to protect your whole state. It, it, it raises, uh, there have been so many federalism questions raised through this pandemic as well. And I guess uh, this is going to raise a hypothetical, but it may not be hypothetical for long. And if Governor Ricketts wants to proceed in that way, um, the reality is, um, and I'm with you, Dorit, that we're going to go on the assumption that it's going to slow transmission. Um, he doesn't get to live in in fantasy epidemiology world if I'm the governor of Iowa. I mean, I, you know, I'm one. You know, what, this sets up some real battles between states, which we had already seen a dress rehearsal for this with the sort of travel ban kind of issues. Do you anticipate? Uh, I mean, people who have COVID are not stopping at the border. I suppose you could ask for shot records at the border, but then this raises comes back to this question of the reality of of these kind of enforcements. Do you foresee these kinds of federalism battles playing out with the vaccination as well? I, to either either of you. I'm asking you in the speculative mode here I, now. I, I think I'm optimistic that there will be less of them. And, and the reason is because while public health is largely a local concern, um, and it is, you know, there are needs from state to varying needs from state to state and community to community. We have been working with a vacuum at the federal level as far as best as discussing what are best practices, discussing what the evidence uh, tells us we should be doing. Um, and so I do think by having a more unified 
evidence informed science based um public health messaging as well as um let's call them uh uh you know influences from the federal level and you know kind of nudges from the federal level um i think we'll see less of that and we'll see a lot more questioning of why why would you be going off book here when all you know when the when everybody now understands that the best approach would be x just want to remind folks you're listening to COVID calls we're talking about vaccines and law and ethics today with dorit rice and ross silverman we're almost up on time and i but i do want to circle back um to the hesitancy issue if we can um spend a little bit more time with it because i have some specific questions about um some of the boundaries around free speech here um and about liability as well you know um hesitancy as i understand it is uh, i mean the term itself is so broad but you know individuals family groups religious groups communities based on their own background their own you know african-american history with vaccination in the united states i mean there's many different stories to spell out here and hesitancy will be a moving target probably throughout this process it already the pew research studies that were already done in december showed a lot of movement between september and december in terms of people's willingness to say yeah i'll get it and or i'll get it but i want to wait a little while before i get it so just to lay down a few things there but are there limits to what people can can say are there limits to the ways people can express their hesitancy can can I take out an, an advertisement, for example, in the New York Times and say that the um, cold chain doesn't work and therefore any vaccine that you get is going to make you say, I mean, am I free to speak um, my hesitancy in the public square? I'm going to start with that, but there's other sort of things I'm curious about in this regard. Dorit, let me start with you on this and then Ross, come to you. Well, the National Vaccine Information Center, the largest anti-vaccine organization in the United States, currently has an ad in Times square not a newspaper ad but an ad in times square trying to scare people from uh, uh, vaccines the answer is under our law it's very hard for the government to step in and stop individuals from uh, promoting anti-vaccine misinformation mm. however a lot of that misinformation goes through the mediation of private companies that give a platform and one of the things we're seeing is uh, those private companies doing some things to limit that. And I will add that my view is very mixed about private companies doing that because they do it with a cudgel. They're, for example, when Facebook uh, tried to downgrade uh, anti-vaccine pages, it downgraded all pages that have the word vaccines. Uh, so they're not great at it. But um, the government can't easily or uh, without a compelling interest in an early tailored approach is silence uh, anti-vaccine misinformation the private companies that give it platform have more freedom uh, there are lesser tools that individuals may be able to use such as stored liability but those are also not easy to use yeah, yeah i i think uh, uh just to build on on what they're and dorit has been a just an absolute force of nature uh in in working to uh uh correct 
misinformation concerning vaccination. Um, uh, just, uh, I mean, I don't know how she does that and all of the all of the writing and all of the speaking. Uh, it's just just incredible and invaluable work. Um, but we do realize. Well, first, I mean, what, first thing we do have to say is is we should put up front the vast majority of the public believes in vaccination as mm -hmm. a public health policy. Um, the vast majority believes, uh, and the vast majority says that when available to them, uh, they are likely to get the vaccine as far as COVID-19 is concerned. Uh, what we may be seeing a little bit right now is maybe they don't want to be the first one in line, which is somewhat understandable with a brand new, uh, a brand new product that has just come out onto the market. Um, uh, you know, the trust, you know, the, the old saying is trust arrives on foot and leaves on horseback. And uh, I think what we're finding here is we have an opposition that is very technologically savvy, very politically savvy, very highly motivated, and they have one issue that they're working on, and that's this, um, and, and perpetuating their own sort of industries um, surrounding this issue versus public health, which is fighting everything. <laughs> and so so I think one of the challenges has been and is underfunded in doing that. Um, you know, we're busy trying to do all the contact tracing and the protections and making sure your, uh, you know, your restaurants are clean and everything else in between. Um, I do think that what has been missing has been you know the 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 pulpit of the of national uh, experts, um, you know, being being a strong voice and a consistent voice in this discussion. You know, there really has been that vacuum again uh, that has allowed a, a lot of these doubts to continue to get seeded and maybe sprout uh, uh, a little more than we would like to see. But yeah, as far as I think, you know, the backlash is trying to keep, you know, you know, not only in, in an offering evidence-based, you know, contrary or contrasting information, but also talking about the harms of platforming these kinds of voices is, uh, um, is important as well. I know none of us would choose this. But the reality is we are embarking right now on a remarkable social science natural experiment, which is that we've had one approach to this pandemic, and now we are going to see a 180 degree different approach to the pandemic. And so some of what you've both been just describing in terms of, let's say, messaging around vaccine efficacy, we had the president of the United States basically telling people, uh, well, whatever came to his mind, but no consistent mm -hmm. message. Um, and now we're going to we've already seen something quite different from the incoming administration. I, we're, we're on the way out, but I want to just get a little quiet as we as we finish up, give you each a chance. If there's something you didn't get to say you wanted to bring up as we close out. But also, um, where do you see us by the summer? Uh, we reached a point of vaccination in the United States where we can really see um, the spread infection rate going down because some of the numbers that are floating around out there about potential numbers of deaths by the summer really are are really horrifying. And I think we all want to see the vaccination prog progress that we that we need. Ross, let me start with you. And then Dorit, I'm going to give you the last word on this. Sure. Um, well, I'll, I'll just, I'll, I'll point to three things. One is vaccines, you know, the, one of the great, uh, I think, um, 
health education resources that came out was the uh, repurposing of the Swiss cheese bottle for uh, a pandemic response. And as you know, James Reason did this with regard to human error and health and, and systems errors. Um, vaccines are one part of a much larger uh, system, systemic response. Um, and so, uh, you know, I think keeping that in context, we need to have strong contact tracing. We need testing. We need PPE. We need all of these things to be working and working better um, in addition to effective vaccine rollout as part of this process. Second is we've only been talking about the U.S. I mean, this is, you know, this is a global issue. Um, and we're starting to see, you know, if other countries don't have the resources to contain outbreaks or mutations of those outbreaks, uh, you know, those are going to become our issues very quickly as well. Um, where I see things, and I, so therefore I do think another big positive uh, in the change in policies will be a global engagement on uh, infectious disease prevention and control. Um, whereas uh, we've seen a very nationalist approach uh, taken uh, by the outgoing administration. Uh, the final thing is in, in the next six months, I, I think I mean, we're getting better. The ramp up is, it really is ramping up. It's, mm -hmm. you know, I don't think, uh, I think things are moving and are, are getting in place. I think again, as more vaccines that can go through the normal vaccine delivery channels come on board, those will be v much more quickly uh, implemented. By summer, um, I, I don't see us being quite in the position where I would say, uh, I'm starting to hear about like universities and other places putting in place policies, assuming that like every one of their students and every one of their Mm -hmm. um, you know, and every one of their employees are going to be able to be vaccinated by that point. Um, I don't think we're going to quite be there by summer. Um, I think late in 21 will be close um, and we'd be closer, but that's kind of where I just, again, and I'm back of the envelope projecting yeah. here, but I, but I think, you know, I think we'll be on our way but we're still going to have a lot of that. You know, you got to have the masking, you got to have the hand washing, you got to have some social distancing and all of those other pieces in place as well. There's a lot to think about on the back of your envelope, Ross. I, <laughs> uh, uh, Dorit, I want to just give you the anything you want to react to there. Um, uh, I'm a little more optimistic. My bet, and I've been going back and forth on it, but my current bet is that by July, people who want to get vaccinated will have be able to do that. Unless something new and uh, painful happens, I also want to add that I hope that we will consider adopting some level of social masking uh, generally, because we've seen this year that it's not only helped with COVID, but it could help us in future years save lives uh, from other respiratory diseases. And we know that there are countries that do that. So maybe one thing to get out of this pandemic is lessons about protecting ourselves generally in, in, in the less uh, burdensome way. Uh, and the last thing I'll say, and this isn't our focus, but uh, one of the biggest concerns I have about getting the vaccines out is the mistrust of, uh, for example, the black community that's very well founded 
the result of decades. And I hope we can use this pandemic to start uh, building some earned trust uh, with that community and other communities that have been subject to discrimination and hurt going forward. I want to remind everybody you've been listening to COVID Calls and you can catch COVID Calls every weekday, 5 p.m. Eastern time. Starting next week, we're going to come back um, and start COVID calls, congressional discussions. And I have Pennsylvania Representative Brendan Boyle from the Pennsylvania 2nd District. Uh, and he has a remarkable op-ed piece in the Philadelphia Inquirer today people might want to check out. So please do join me on Monday at 5 p.m. Uh, with my discussion with Brendan Boyle. And I want to thank Dorit Rice and Ross Silverman for this total masterclass of an hour today, taking us inside discussion about vaccine and law and policy and the ethical implications of it. Thank you both for everything you're doing, both in your research, but also in your public engagement as well. Thank you for this wonderful chance to discuss this with you, both of you. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Stay healthy, everybody. We'll see you on Monday at five o'clock.